great God, thank you that we can come and sing your praise, practice and remember um, the work of your son and rejoice to be yours together. On top of it all, you use us and let us be your servants. Lord, our God, thank you that you are always at work in and through us. This morning, reaffirm us in this and help us, Lord, see you and hear you today. Would you speak here, Lord, in spite of me and my frailty, but in your great strength, would you be glorified? Holy Spirit, take the word which you have written and speak it now. For our good and for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Charles Spurgeon, that great Christian leader of the 19th century, experienced profound pain at times, even, even depression. It would be enough to make anyone doubt that God was with them to have gone through some of the tumultuous things that he went through. At one point, um, he had been preaching to a gathering of several thousand uh, in the congregation. Someone decided they'd pull a prank. They thought it'd be funny to yell fire. In the ensuing stampede, seven people died. 28 were seriously injured. The newspapers uh, across London mercilessly blamed Spurgeon for the incident. As a result, he wrestled. He wrestled with doubt. He wrestled with grief over what had happened. I'm sure some of it was understandable, and I'm sure some of it was just spiritual attack and supernatural, even if it wasn't logical. He, uh, at this point in his life, was 22 years old. He was 10 months into marriage. Uh, he and his wife were one month into having twin babies. And on top of that, they had just moved and they were living out of boxes in their home. So you can imagine all of the convergence of the strife at this point in his life. Well, the accusations nearly broke him. For days afterwards, he said the very sight of the Bible made him cry. But he did what was nearly impossible in his own strength in that time to do. He picked up his Bible, and he read. In fact, uh, he read a passage, just so happens to be, in the book of Philippians. We're not going to go there today, and I won't tell you what it is. Sorry, look it up for yourself. But he read a passage even from the book of Philippians, and and while it wasn't even much addressed to his particular situation, yet he said, it had such power of comfort upon my distressed spirit. God used it, and it reaffirmed for him that Christ knew him, that Christ knew his situation, and that his Savior was ever working in him, even in this most difficult of scenarios. Do you know that comfort, and do I know that comfort of the Lord ever working in us? I don't, I don't just mean that he is ever working. I mean that he is ever working. You understand the difference? The Lord is, is working in people's lives all the time. But for the child of God, he is ever working. The word of God says there is never a time that he is not at work for his purpose and their good and for his glory in whatever their circumstances. Never ceasing, always present, ever wise, constantly leading, faithfully shepherding. So how do we grow in the confidence of that? Well, let's let God's word show us. This morning as Paul opens his letter to the Philippians, pick up with me, starting in the first verse of chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my prayer, in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, 
since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Pause there. First thing, first, to grow in confidence of God ever working in us is to embrace God's redeemed community. Embrace God's redeemed community. The church, the gathering of his people, it's plenary gathering as a congregation, and it's smaller gatherings in small groups, being identified regularly with God's people. That's how we grow in confidence of God ever working in you. May God so ordain to encourage you in his ever working in you because you are here this morning. The Philippians have false teachers in their midst. We're going to find that out in the course of this book, primarily in chapter 3, that are trying to draw them away from the believers, that are trying to pull them out of community, that are trying to destroy them. And this is just like you. There are false teachers today who are either trying to draw you out of the church, trying to say, why do you fellowship? Why are you associated with? Why do you participate with such people? They're either trying to draw you out of the church's safe gathering, or they're trying to change the one that you're in. The world today is working really hard to change the church, isn't it? To make you feel bad for believing what it's believed. In fact, uh, someone once said, if you, if you look down through history, primarily in Western history, more recent history of the last few centuries, and you find the places where, where in, in large moves, the church left the gospel, the church left the truth, the, the church became unfaithful. By and large, you'll, you'll find one common denominator of those times is that the church became embarrassed of what it believed. It became embarrassed about God or about the Bible or about something like that, and as a result, it tried to appease those who tried to make it feel ashamed. And the result was apostasy. The result was unfaithfulness. The world is working hard either to get you out of the church or to change the one that you're in. It's trying to redefine what will be tolerated and what won't in this society. The Philippians also are living under the fears of persecution. The church in Philippi started this way with Paul because he himself, when he first came to Philippi, ended up in prison. So they got the picture that if we're going to follow Jesus like this guy, we will probably share in the same suffering that he does. And now Paul himself writes to them from prison, again, there because of the gospel. And so they, even as they receive this letter, I believe, are living under the fears of persecution. Wondering if Paul himself is wallowing in misery, maybe even having second thoughts about where he's at. And so he, he writes them this incredibly positive, optimistic, amazing, abundantly joyful letter. He's going to argue them throughout this letter, the joy of sharing in the glory of the gospel and its suffering. Living under the fears of persecution just like you. Just like you, not knowing if this week, as you go to work, your job may be on the line because of your faithfulness and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're probably asking that question today like you've never asked it before in your lifetime, I would guess. Wondering today what societies might exclude you if you choose to speak up for Christ and be identified with him. Wondering what faithfulness for Christ might cost you tomorrow in your parenting Faithfulness in your school, faithfulness in your calling, what it might cost you. The good news is God is ever working in you, but how will be you be affirmed in that? Because there are many pressures seeking to separate you from God's people. There will be many more seeking to separate you from God's redeemed community as there were for the Philippians. So let me give you five reasons this morning that Paul gives them, five reasons to embrace God's redeemed community quickly. First here, notice, God's leaders are called to be servants. 
in his community. God's leaders are called to be servants, and this is one of the joys and the blessings of embracing this community is having that blessing. Notice how Paul opens, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Incredibly important term that Paul uses there so often elsewhere. Paul writes the letters and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He comes with authority to let them know, look, I'm going to address some things and y'all are going to need to listen, not because of me, but because of the one I serve. Jesus told me, and so I'm telling you, Paul says, but that's not what he does. Not in Philippians. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants. Not only is that noteworthy by the contrast, but it's also noteworthy because of one of the most ringing passages in all of Philippians, one of the most famous, describes the Lord Jesus Christ himself as what? He who not only took on the form of a man, but humbled himself to take on the form of a bondservant. And so here is Paul letting us know right out of the gate where he's going to go. Hey, keep eyes open for this theme. And so leaders are called to be servants in the body of Christ. Whether you get paid for it as staff, whether you have a title behind your name, whether you serve as a pastor but not a staff, um, in which case you're called an elder and then you get to be good for nothing, I've told them that plenty of times. <laughs> they love that term. You serve for intangible, eternal benefits. Or whether you do it as a small group leader, or whether you lead in the nursery, and you lead by changing diapers and singing songs with little kids, or whatever it is that you may do in the body of Christ, leaders are called to be servants. And that's a great place to be. That's a great blessing to be a part of second, embrace God's redeemed community because God's people are called to be holy. And that's a good community to be a part of. God's people are called to be holy. How are they addressed here? Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. I read this for the first time. I've never heard this before, but I read this for the first time this week that uh, the first time that the term saints in Scripture was ever used to speak of people, not angels, was in the writing of the book of Corinthians. <laughs> In 45 AD, maybe it's 54, somewhere like that. Um, hmm, I can't prove that, but somebody said it. Um, I do know that the idea is true. That term being spoken of for the people of God is a powerful term. Not because the holiness or the set-apartness of God's people is new in the New Testament. No, this is, in fact, an echo of what we're told in Exodus 19, the nation of Israel has said, you are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Leviticus chapter 19, the people of God are commanded, you shall be holy for I am holy. But the term that is ascribed here is new in the New Testament. Saints, hagios, holy one. God's people are called to be holy, so embrace God's redeemed community. Third reason you're blessed to be part of God's redeemed community and you should embrace it is because God gave his word to fortify churches. God gave his word to fortify churches. Hmm, you say, well, you, you mean only to churches? No, not only, but I want you to pause and think about it and think biblically about it. To whom were the letters of the New Testament given? Great homework assignment. Just go skim. Skim the opening verses. And you will be surprised to find how many times in the letters of Paul he says, I write to the church of Galatia. Or he'll say, hey, this letter that I send to you, make sure that it's read in the churches of Laodicea and read the letters that I send to them. We go, wait, we don't have that letter in the Bible. No, it wasn't scripture. But it was part of the practice of those letters given to churches. And you can go on down through the list, not just the letters of Paul, but you can go on down through Philemon and Jude and Peter and James and John and Revelation. It's a fun little study, in fact. It doesn't say that here, written to the church of Philippi. What does it say? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And then it says this, including the overseers and the deacons. Well, those are the two offices of the church. Overseer is an equivalent term for elder. Elder, bishop, overseer, pastor, shepherd are interchangeable terms in the New Testament for what we call here the office of elder. 
and then the office of deacons. This is specifically written to these Christians who are gathered with this structure. And the word of God is given to them primarily to fortify them. So why embrace God's redeemed community? Because if you come here Sunday in and Sunday out, week in and week out for the rest of your life, God help us, you will be bathed and nourished in the word of God because he gave his word to churches. And we are called the pillar and ground or pillar and support of the truth. That is what the church is. And that is what we will do, God helping us every Sunday of our lives. Fourth, Fourth, notice the fullness of God's blessing towards you in this community. Notice the fullness of God's blessing towards you in this community. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is calling down a blessing, an apostolic prayer, asking for God's um, outpouring of grace towards towards these believers gathered in this church. And what are the words he used? He uses Grace and peace, those are very comprehensive terms. Grace, arguably, is, is the most important term in all of the New Testament. God's unmerited favor. Everything is built upon grace, what he has done for us, not what we earn from him. That's grace. How about peace? Think Old Testament for a second, and you tell me what Hebrew word lies behind that word. Shalom. No, it doesn't say shalom here because Paul's writing in Greek. He writes Irene, but he's thinking in Jewish terms. Grace and peace. Grace isn't new in the New Testament, but charis becomes a powerful term throughout the writings in Greek in the New Testament, and shalom, one of the most powerful words from the Old Testament. We were created for wholeness. And so grace, here you have the foundation of everything we have as a community of people, of God in Christ, and we have the fruits, shalom, that come from that foundation, the wholeness that comes. Embrace God's redeemed community. You say, well, I don't need a bunch of other people for an hour on Sunday morning, you know, to have those things. No, you don't, but we are defined by that, and we gather together consciously to celebrate that. And who knows, you might just get alone and get isolated and forget. Embrace God's redeemed community. These are the blessings that Paul is urging these Philippians to not forget in the midst of those who are calling them away. Lastly, I want to just notice one thing in this section. Um, What single term is repeated here three times in these two verses verses that defines this community. It's so obvious, it's so easy to miss because we see it all over Scripture. Answer, Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy are bondservants of Christ Jesus. The Philippians are saints in Christ Jesus. And the blessing that that Paul calls down upon them is um, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ defines this community. Christ defines this community. So embrace God's redeemed community. I know I'm preaching to the choir for those present or even those probably watching in and joining today, but a good reminder for us as Paul encourages these Philippians, consider this, if you were a Christian in the first century, how did you get the Bible? Because you didn't have your own copy. And for many centuries after that, Answer, you came to church because that was the only place you got the word of God. With the exception of those passages that you or your friends could memorize and repeat, that's all you had, and that's where you got it. Well, praise God for the common grace of the advent of the printing press that we don't have to have such a dearth, at least not here in America, are still places in the world like that, that we don't have such a dearth of God's word, but it doesn't change the blessing of this redeemed community built upon, built for, and nourished in the word of God. You want to grow in confidence in God's ever working in you, embrace God's redeemed community. Second, to grow in confidence in God's ever working, participate in the gospel. Participate in the gospel. Verses 3 through 5, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering 
prayer with joy in my prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. The takeaway for us from this passage, as Paul wanted the Philippians to take away from it, was that because of their participation in the gospel, he was richly filled with joy. He is encouraging them with his joy. But if you just read chapter 1 and you get Paul, Paul's a happy dude. Paul is joyful. Cool. If you just get that, then, then you're not paying enough attention. You haven't bothered to, to get confused enough. It's confusing to ask the question, why is Paul joyful and, and why do we care about Paul being so joyful? Because the passage tells us why. That's why it's important. He tells them, your participation in the gospel brings me joy. Verse 3, I thank my God. Verse 4, with joy. Verse 5, in view of or in light of or because of your participation in the gospel. Where do we see Paul's joy then in these verses? Well, notice Paul's joy in his praying. Notice Paul's all-encompassing prayer is because of his joy. Let me read it with emphasis, and you tell me if you think this is all-encompassing. You ready? I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. You get the picture? Those are all the same root, and so you're reading pon and panta and pantas throughout that little phrase, and you're like, okay, Paul, I'm getting the point. You're like always praying all the time, everywhere, for everything, for everybody. And Paul is just so jazzed about their participation in the gospel. It's as though it's this superabounding outpouring as he comes and kneels before the Father. And he says, praise you, Lord God. Look at these glorious people whom you've purchased out of darkness, whom you've called out of paganism, whom you've rescued from lies and deceit and destruction. Lord, look at them. I can't help but just rejoice before you. This is expansive prayer. This is abounding prayer. There are five properties of Paul's pervasive prayer. The only thing that would have been better about that sentence is if I could have come up with 15 properties, then it would have been perfect. Five properties of Paul's pervasive prayer. I want you to notice his prayer is regular his prayer is regular, verse 4, always offering prayer. Notice his prayer is specific, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer. He comes with requests. He comes naming names and bringing up particular things, his, his every prayer that he's offering at regular times for these people. His prayer is comprehensive. He said is, it is for you all. That's a great encouragement. The prayers of Paul are without prejudice. They're, they're, they're not excluding anyone. It's, it's not just the people in Philippi that he likes, but I'm going to ignore those who don't agree with me. He says, I pray for you all. You could, by the way, take these five things and, and just check out your own prayer life and see what encouragements you may take from it. What a cool thing that, that Paul's prayer is comprehensive in those he prays for. It, it, it includes those that he might be at odds with. You know, it's hard to hate people you pray for. It's hard to stay angry long at those you bring before the throne of grace. In fact, I dare say that there are times in our lives where it is the only thing that will keep us out of growing deep in the roots of bitterness in our own lives. Always praying for you in my every prayer. Notice also that it's personal. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance. I, I remember you by, by name. It's thoughtful. I think of, of conversations we've had. I remember how you prayed for me when I was in prison and God answered prayer and there was an earthquake and some awesome stuff. That was so cool. Thank you. 
I remember when I got out and with tears, you threw your arms around me, you couldn't believe that I was out. Who are the people in your life that just by virtue of meditation and remembrance of them, you are moved to prayer. That's how it should be. And if you have people who are on a list to pray for, pray thoughtfully, pray personally. I know sometimes uh, for all of us, we, we, we have lists of people to pray for, and it's easy to just get rope. But here's a great encouragement as we sometimes pray uh, through names in the directory as elders for those who are in our body. It can, it can become just, a, well, we're checking the box. Unless I get personal and I stop and I think they have kids and I bet they want those kids to be saved. In fact, now that I think about it, so do I, just for the glory of God. And that's something I can get excited about praying for. Lord, save Save their kids. Draw them to Christ. We don't assume it's going to happen just because they're going to grow up in the church. Lord, do a miracle and let their eyes be open to you. Well, you get the picture a million different ways in my every remembrance. And then lastly, all of his all-encompassing prayer is joyful. Always offering prayer with joy. There's a time to pray with tears. There's a, there's a time to pray with trepidation. There's a time to pray with profound sobriety. There's also time to pray with joy. And when Paul thinks of these believers, he says, I, I can't help it. I just, I'm trying to talk, but my, my smile is so wide and my grin is so <laughs> stretched so, so hard, I can barely even talk out loud when I pray. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Why? So, we get it, Paul is one happy apostle. So what? What are we supposed to do with that? The same thing that Paul wants the Philippians to do with that. Take encouragement to participate in the gospel. Because it's that participation that has produced this joy participate in the gospel. The word there in verse 5 is one of the key words for this book, and it's a word you've heard before. You've heard the Greek before. Many of you have. Um, and you should keep eyes out for it because it's, uh, it, it appears with different English words depending upon the translations. Uh, it's the word koinonia. It means fellowship, participation, sharing, or partnership. Depending upon the context, it can mean any one of those kinds of things. It's a beautiful word. And what he says here is you shared in, you participated in, you partnered in the gospel. Well, what was their participation in the gospel? In what ways did the Philippians koinonia the gospel? I'll give you four things quickly just so we know what we're talking about because we should seek to do the same. First, they, uh, they financially supported the ministry of the gospel. We're going to see that in chapter 4. That will be a specific thanks of Paul for how they've supported him as a missionary in sharing the gospel. That was one way they participated in the gospel. Second, they participated in it by prayer. I would argue that from verse 7, enough said for now. Third, they participate in the gospel just by their personal devotion to the gospel, making it first and foremost in their lives. Verse 7, I would argue that, and later in verse 27. And then lastly, by their witness for the gospel. And I would find that in verse 27 of this chapter also. He, he calls them to, to live worthily as citizens of the gospel. Such a great phrase. Well, Lord willing, get a chance to chew on. Citizens of the gospel. Walk worthy of the gospel. What's the point? By their witness by their generosity, by their prayers, and by their investment in the gospel in their own lives. They are now partakers in it in every way. And he says, every time I think about that, every time I hear about that, I get excited and I explode with prayer. Why does Paul write it? Why? Great, nice. So what? What's the point? Paul wants... The Philippians to know it brings joy to your leaders when you participate in the gospel. It brings joy to fellow believers 
when you participate in the gospel. It brings joy to those who follow your example, and they're looking up to you when you participate in the gospel. It brings joy to your children, to your students, to your players, to your siblings when you participate in the Gospels, if they know the Lord. Family, when your elders pray for you, it is their joy that you evidence your share in the grace of the gospel. The Apostle John says, I have no greater joy than this, but to hear that my children walk in the truth. When we hear about somebody from our body sharing the gospel with somebody, do you know how that makes us pray? Thank you, Lord. When we hear about Somebody in our church standing faithfully for the truth, making a hard decision because they want to honor Christ. Man, we are so thrilled. Thank you, God, that you're doing that work. When we hear of somebody in our body choosing to do the impossible and to forgive when they've been deeply wronged and to seek to reconcile a relationship, that's only only possible by the power the Holy Spirit through Christ in a person's life. You know what we do? We go, praise be to God. Lord, what a joy. It brings joy to your elders when you participate in the gospel. It brings joy to your small group leaders when they hear of the people in the small group (laughs) who are reaching out to others who maybe we haven't seen for a while or when you make a hard decision, or when you choose prayer over anger, grace over vengeance. Your small group leaders rejoice. Children, you think your parents are happy when they see you participate in the gospel? Shoot me now, Lord. I can go home. Take me, because it doesn't get any better than this. To see our children love the Lord Jesus when those glimpses happen. No greater joy. Parents, how do you think your children feel when they see you participate in the gospel? You think, I know they're not that old and they probably don't quite get it yet. Oh, yeah? You know how much more they get than they ever say. You know how much more the Lord is revealing to them that they don't even fully comprehend yet, but one day they will. And you're going to do it terribly and perfectly, and so do I every day. But when you and I participate in the gospel in all of those ways, it is joy and security to their soul, isn't it? If you're a teacher, how about your students? If you're a coach, how about your players? They may not even be believers yet, but they'll see the effects, they'll see the fruit, and it will bring security and peace and help to their lives, whether whether they can even articulate it or not. What a glorious dynamic is here. If you just read chapter 1, if I just read it and just get, well, that's a happy Paul. That's a super happy apostle. We've missed all the glory of, of the encouragement of the Word of God for us. Participate in the gospel, and that produces that joy in you and in others. Third and finally, to grow in confidence in God ever working in you. Let love sharpen your thinking. Let love sharpen your thinking. And let love reinforce your security. Let love reinforce your security. Now, what Paul does here is terribly confusing and wonderfully life-giving, I think, if we just let the Word of God speak and we pause long enough to do it. I'm going to try and do it quickly, um, and then I'll, I'll commend it to you for your continued consideration and meditation. Question, is it possible for emotions to help you think more clearly? If you're female, you're thinking, no, it does just the opposite. (laughs) And if you're a man, you go, what what did you say about emotions? (laughs) (gasps) Typically. Is it possible for emotions to help you think more clearly? 
Well, again, I just want to pause and linger over what's going on here. How does Paul feel about the Philippians? I think you've kind of got an idea of that already. But I want you to also consciously consider why does it matter or does it matter at all? Verse 6. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. There's koinonia the second time in the book, by the way. Partakers of grace, sharers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. God is my witness. That sounds like a pretty strong statement, Paul. Like you're really wanting to emphasize something there. What is it that Paul wants to emphasize? He wants to emphasize his affections. Why? Because he's trying to prove to them that he really loves them. Look, I know you don't think I even like you guys, but I totally like you guys. Like God even knows I really like you guys. No, they know. But there's a pretty important reason there. That, that should tip us off. God is my witness. Strong statement. Let's track the flow quickly. First, what does he tell them in verse 6? He tells them, God will complete his work in you. I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I can't skim over that. I want to say a couple things about it. I want you to notice that work of God. I want you to notice it's both past and future. Right? It's right there. He who began. In order for you to believe, God had to open your eyes and give you the gift of faith in order for you to believe. In fact, in Acts, it says the first convert in Philippi, Lydia, it, it says that upon hearing the gospel that God opened her eyes to believe. He who began a good work in you, there it is in the past, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. There it is. In the future, he will finish it. It's, it's divine on both ends. God is working to save a person, and God is working to bring them finally to glorification. And he will not give up on them or let them go or lose them any time in between. Now, that's what the passage says. Now, what the spirit of the passage then communicates is that the work of God is ongoing in between. There, there's a wonderfully grammatically incorrect phrase that makes the point better than I think good grammar ever could. So the NAS translates it this way. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's just bad grammar. It should say he will be perfecting it until that day, right? Or it should say he will have it perfected on that day, but it says he will perfect it until that day. Which is it? it? The grammar is messy. Concept is perfect. Perfection, glorification, sinlessness, the image of Christ, everything that God made Adam and Eve for in the garden, all of that is you one day, certainly. And God is at work on that in an ongoing way until the day of Christ Jesus, when on that day he will do it for sure. It's a wonderful, wonderful phrase, as grammatically incorrect as it might feel. In fact, ESV and others uh, don't even try to do it literally. They just say, he will be completing it. They, they just, you know, throw in the towel and give some different English words. No, he will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus is what it says, and that's terribly encouraging. God will complete his work in you. God, child of God, is ever working in you. Just like Jesus says of the one who comes to him, he says, I will never cast him out. As Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and I know them, and I hold them in my hands, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Because of his sovereignty, because of his certainty, because of his promise, because he can never lie, no one. This is what Paul writes of elsewhere in the famous passage in Romans 8, for those whom God foreknew, he predestined 
that they would be conformed to the image of his son. Everyone whom he saves, he will conform to perfect Christ-likeness. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Duh, past tense. You say, I'm not glorified yet. No, but so certain is it in the economy of God that Paul can speak of it today in the past tense. Glorified, duh, because it's a certainty in God's economy for everyone who is his. God is working in you, child of God. He who began it will complete it. Oh, that's gloriously encouraging. Is God ever working in you? Sometimes you go, I don't know if God is ever working in me. No, he is ever working in you if you know Christ. Now, what does Paul say about that? We got that point, but we must move on to see the dynamic. Paul says, I'm confident of this. I'm convinced of this. I'm persuaded of this. I'm certain of this. I'm sure of this. All of those are legitimate English translations of the word poithos, which Paul uses there. Having been convinced of this very thing. And then he says this in verse 7. Why, why, why is Paul confident of this for them? Why is Paul so confident that God who began the work is going to continue it? And why is, he, why is he convinced of it for them? Well, Paul tells us why he is confident of them, of this for them. He answers in verse 7. It's only right for me to feel this way. By the way, the word feel is actually the word think. It's right for me to think this way. I like think in this translation, although I, in, in this place, although I understand why the translators use feel, because there's a lot of emotion flying around in this passage. Uh, froneo is think, though, and I think think goes with confidence, so I like that better in verse 6. It is right for me to think this way. This isn't just a passing emotion. I, I kind of feel like, you know, you might, you might go to heaven. I, I'm feeling that way today. Tomorrow, maybe not so much. Is that what you want out of Philippians 1? Okay, that, that's why I like think. I am convinced of this, and it is right for me to think this. It is right for me to be convinced of this, that God will continue working in you. Okay, good. Now he's going to tell us why. And here it is. Because I have you in my heart. Thanks, that doesn't help me. Paul, I don't understand. You're convinced that Jesus will never leave nor forsake me because you love me. I still don't get it. Well, he's going to continue explaining. Why does he have them in his heart? Because they are partakers of grace, that's the short version, here's the long version. I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. There are three aspects of where he says, I have seen you guys participate, share, be partners in grace. I've seen it in these three areas. If we had time, whole sermon right there, right? Um, to talk about those ways that they shared in it by their prayer, by their giving, by their devotion, by their commitment to him, and even by their own witness and their own lives in the uh, uh, affirmation of the gospel. The point I want you to take away is, he says, because I see evidence of grace in you, I have you in my heart because I've seen grace in you. I've seen your life be changed by the coming of Christ. I've seen the difference that grace makes, Paul says. Have you ever said this to somebody? I, I can't imagine maybe more powerful words that you can say to a person. Maybe I'd, th maybe I'd throw, I forgive you, up there with it. That, that, but I don't know what else. Brother, I see grace in your life. Sister, I see grace right there working in your life. What a powerful thing to say. This is what Paul tells the Philippians. And he says, because I see grace, you are a partaker of it. And I have you in my heart. Now, he's not quite done yet. He's going to put the capstone on it, verse 8. For God is my witness. Now, here's, here's the capper, right? Here's the climax. Here's that great statement. God is my witness. Okay, I want you to know that this you can bank on. I will stand before Yahweh and agree with what I'm going to tell you next. I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Do you see what Paul is doing there? Paul is saying, it's not my love that loves you. I am convinced, and it's right for me to be convinced, 
that God is at work in you and will never let you go. Why? Because I like you. Paul says, I don't love you with the love of Paul. What does he say? I love you with the affection of Christ. For a man who saw them in their lost state, suffered for them in his going to prison, saw them come to faith in Christ, now has prayed over them for many months and years with tears. Do you, do you think he's grown a bond with them? And now he can say, I don't just love you. I love you because Christ loves you. In fact, Christ loves you through me. And because of that love that's in my heart, it's a supernatural love. I am convinced, I know, that he will never stop working in me. When can you and I say that of somebody else? Answer, I don't know. <laughs> but I want more of that. Don't you? Don't you want to be so committed to those people in your life, especially those priority relationships that you have prayed for them and fought for them and loved them and been so selfless in serving them. Yes, you're going to mess it up terribly. I get that. So am I. But don't you want to do that at least as much as you can so often and so well that eventually you find, I don't just love you. Christ loves you through me. My love for you is Christ's love for you. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen a spouse give their fading weeks or months or years to another spouse who has a terminal disease? I can't help it because I love you so much. Christ loves you and loves you through me. Or a parent right? Who are the people in your life whom you can say that of? I am so convinced that Christ loves you through me. The audacity. Oh man, I want to be able to say that about a lot of people. I want that list to get longer and longer and longer in my life, don't you? Let love sharpen your thinking. It's only right for me to think this way let love reinforce your security. How are you going to do those two things? I don't know exactly. The passage doesn't exactly tell us, but I just want to give a general encouragement here. Speak into one another's lives and reinforce their security. When you see grace in a person's life, speak to it because it's powerful. I see grace right there. And on the other hand, let others speak into your life and receive it and let it be security. Who was it? And maybe they didn't speak these right words, and maybe they didn't even do it super well. But who can you think of in the last week has loved you with the affection of Christ? And maybe they didn't even know it. Maybe tonight before you go to bed, you just spend some time in your journal and write out some of those names. Lord Jesus, you really love me because, Kevin, you, you must really love me because, Sally, you must really, really love me because, and you just... Fill in the blanks and say, Lord, what, what security that I have that you are loving me with people around me, imperfect, broken, fallen, selfish people just like I am, and yet loving me with your love. What a great encouragement that is and is meant to be for us. Well, Paul says in this passage, if we, get, if we stare long enough to get confused, we'll find something glorious. So I'm going to build it now in reverse order from the ground up. Christ has an affection for you, he says, and those affections are the root of all of my yearning for you. He says, I long for you, Philippians. His affection is the root of my yearning for you. And since also I see grace in your life, now I have you in my heart. And as a result, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will complete it. That's a glorious dynamic, isn't it? Be encouraged by those who see grace at work in your life and speak to you. Be encouraged by those who do love you because they love you ultimately with the love of Christ if you know God because Christ is loving you through them and it's part of what he is committed to do. And look for Christ's love in your life and his work in your life and let it 
strengthen your security. Let it fortify your security in him because he is ever working. Friend, is God ever working in you? If you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Christ, we want to tell you what God offers you is so mind-blowingly rich and good. Not just a ticket out of flames. Not, not, not just an eternity sitting on clouds strumming harps. No. It's that he would commit himself to you as a father and never leave nor forsake and constantly be at work in you in all things and allow you to be a part of a community of believers that you are called into and and adopted into and baptized into by his spirit that experiences this. He promises to be ever working in you if you will participate in grace. Friend, if you have not yet come to participate in grace, if you can't say, I know the taste of it, I know that I've experienced grace, I know Christ's forgiveness for me and that I am his, then today we would call you and encourage you to admit your need. Agree that he is the solution and that he himself is sufficient and then ask for mercy and forgiveness and he has promised to shower you with grace. What a great God we serve. Stand with me and let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your grace towards us in Christ and that you let us participate in this grace this week. Might we be seized by your love for, for people so much so that the, the affections of Christ take root in our hearts and create in us a yearning and a love so that we would have others in our hearts. Lord, do this in us because I can't do it of my own, but you love to do that in me. You love to do that in us and be glorified by that. Lord, thank you that you never stop working and that today in whatever struggles this week, whatever decisions, hardships, concerns, fears, we have, Lord, you are working. Let us bring your light and your life wherever we go, this hope that you have given us. We praise you and we thank you for it in the strong name of Christ and all God's people said, amen. God